at what other service can you have someone dance beautifully? Can you sing in Korean and have this amazing offertory, right? Right? Yes. That's great. And you all did really well with that Korean song. I think that's the first time we've done that so far this year, that one, maybe. Sounds of Korean worship. Yes, okay. So, way to go. Good work. Um, I am delighted that Pastor Matt is not here tonight because he and his wife are at the hospital and they, at 7.50 p.m., welcomed in their new baby girl. Her name is Thea Joyce Postma, and he says all are doing well. So that's baby watch number one. Baby watch number two, for those of you who often come to Sounds of Korean Worship or worship in some of our Korean communities, Pastor James Lee, who was a barn and then a worship apprentice and then a seminary intern, and now leads a Korean worship for us. He and his wife, same hospital, and we are waiting because they too are uh, in labor and hopefully um, before the end of the service, we'll get another baby announcement because, you know, why not? <laughs> why not? So, um, so I'm going to uh, lead us in prayer for these families tonight. Let's pray. God, it is good to be with your people. It is good to celebrate new life. We pray today for Matt and Jana as they welcome in their daughter. Lord, we pray for tonight. We pray that they are able to rest, that Jana is able to recover. We pray for little Thea. We pray, Lord, that you bless her, that you strengthen her, that you protect her. We pray that you raise her up as a woman after your own heart. May she be a warrior for you. Make her strong. Make her a lover of righteousness. Make her a person of grace and truth. We pray for Matt and Jana in their parenting of Eden and now of Thea. Surround them with your mercies and with your love. We pray for James and Jin who are awaiting the arrival of their boy. Lord, we pray that things go well. We pray that he comes healthy. We pray for Jin. It's been a long 24 hours for her. And we pray, Lord, that you give her peace. We pray for their families who are away and waiting for news that you help them to have peace too. Lord, it's so good to celebrate new life, particularly in a day when we're so aware that we need it. We need good news. We need the gospel. When there are more protests, when there are, are more natural disasters, when racism once again rears its ugly head, we praise you for good news. And so now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that these old stories from an ancient people will come to life and bring us even more good news tonight. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So have you ever wondered why we actually have clergy people? Like, why do we have pastors and preachers and priests? What's, why do we have these people who are set apart to teach us scripture and to perform the sacraments and to guide the church? Where does this come from? 
Well, when God was teaching Moses and giving him all the commandments that the people were going to follow, the whole book of the law, he also gave them very strict instructions around setting up a priesthood. And he gave them strict instructions even on what the priest was supposed to wear, what the priest was supposed to eat, whom the priest was supposed to marry, how the priest was supposed to grieve. All of these things were laid out very clearly in the law given to Moses. And God said to Moses, the first high priest is going to be your brother Aaron. And he didn't say, that's because I really like Aaron. I think he's a good guy. Let's go with Aaron. He didn't say, you know, Aaron, that Aaron, he's smart. He's bright. He pays it. We're going with Aaron. He didn't say, you know, Aaron's been a particularly good boy this year. <laughs> and we're going to give him this reward. That wasn't it at all. God just said, it's going to be Aaron. Aaron didn't earn it. He did nothing to get this. And it would go from him to his son to his grandson, and this would become a familial thing, passed on from generation to generation, the role of the high priest. And so all of this is spelled out in Leviticus. And then Moses actually gets to do it, spelled out in Exodus, and he gets to do it in Leviticus. He actually gets to go through the ceremony and ordain his brother. And we're going to look at that tonight. Leviticus chapter 8. I'm sure this is a life verse text for many of you because people just love their Leviticus. We're looking at Leviticus 8. This is page 82 in your pew Bibles. That's the black books that you should find around you. Page 82. We're going to first read uh, the first nine verses there. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, the vestments, the anointing oil, the bull of sin offering, the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, all of which are spelled out in Exodus 28 and following, and assemble the whole congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. When the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting, Moses said to the congregation, this is what the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water. He put the tunic on him fastened the sash around him, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him. He then put the decorated band of the ephod around him, tying the ephod to him with it. He placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden ornament, the holy crown, as God commanded Moses. So all of these vestments were very specifically laid out as far as color and style and size. And this is probably what it looked like, something, something like this. So you have the turban and the plate on the front. In Hebrew, it would say, holy to the Lord. You have the tunic, the sash, the ephod. Around the bottom were bells and pomegranates, little woven pomegranates, which was a sign of fertility and goodness. And the bells were on... Um, so that there would be an appropriate distance so that you wouldn't just rush on into the Holy of Holies like you're late for doing your sacrifice and you just rush on in. Like, 
you'd have to take a measured, careful step to remind people where you were going and what you were doing and that it was holy, that it was different. And on the shoulders, the names of the 12 tribes, six on each shoulders were engraved. And then on the front, the breastplate, each of the 12 tribes with their names. And each had an assigned gemstone color. This is one example of what that may have looked like. This was to remind the high priest, Aaron at this time, that he carried the people on his shoulders, but also that his role was to take the people and bring them to God, to take their cares and concerns and their sins and their thanksgiving and bring them to God. That was the role of the high priest. That's the role of the priest. So Moses was the one who takes the word of God and brings it down to the people. The priest is the one who takes the words of the people and brings them to God. That's a really simple way to think about it. So the role of the priest is to be a mediator between the people and a holy God. And they need a mediator because God is holy. And they can't just approach him on their own. They need someone who embodies as much holiness as they can put on him to bring their needs into the presence of a holy God. That's the role of the high priest. That's why he gets special attire. He's set apart. He's different. All right, let's keep reading. What happens next? Verse 10. Then Moses took the anointing oil. By the way, there's a special recipe for the anointing oil, and if you use that recipe for anything else, bad, 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 bad things happen to you. He anointed the tabernacle, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and all that was in it and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its base to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought forward Aaron's sons and clothed them with tunics and fashioned sashes around them and tied headdresses on them as the Lord commanded Moses. And now we get to the sacrifice part. So first in verse 14, we have a sin offering. And then in verse 18, we have a burnt offering. And then in verse 22, we have the second ram, the ram of ordination. Now pay attention to this. Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram and it was slaughtered. Moses took some of its blood and put it on the robe of Aaron's, lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Now, scholars say that the anointing of various parts of the body was a symbol that all of the body was being consecrated. The whole of the body was being given over to holiness. And the signs, these are particular body parts, so the ears, so that the priest would always be listening to God. The thumb, for the hand, that he would always act in a way that was in accordance with the law, and the foot so that he would always be walking in the path laid out for him by God. So this complete and total dedication of the priest. So then uh, Moses takes this oil and he takes some of the blood and he actually sprinkles it all over the very nice new vestments, sprinkles it on the vestments, sprinkles it on the altar, and then we pick it up in verse 31. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh, that is the flesh of all these animals, that are all the flesh that's left, at the entrance of the tent of meeting and eat it there with the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings as I was commanded 
Aaron and his son shall eat of it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn with fire. You shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the day when your period of ordination is complete, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord is commanded to be done to make atonement for you. You shall remain at the entrance of the tent of meeting day and night for seven days, keeping the Lord's charge so that you do not die. For so I am commanded. Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded through Moses. So for an entire week, these sacrifices get repeated. This whole process happens again and again and again to purify them, to say, you are now set apart. You are special in our community. We ordain you to this job. And there's very much the threat of death kind of hanging over this whole thing, right? Like, you better do this or or you'll die. And that's because once the holy has been kind of imparted onto Aaron and his sons through this, if they come in contact with an unholy thing, it will contaminate them. And they will not be able to withstand it. So for a week, they're set apart until the period of ordination is complete. And then the eighth day, Aaron gets to do the sacrifices for the first time as high priest. So chapter 9, verse 8. First, he does the sin offering, which was for himself, right? So the first thing the priest has to do is make sure that he is right with God. And then he does the burnt offering. And then he does the people's offering. And then he presents the offerings again. Then in verse 18, he slaughters the ox and the ram as a sacrifice of well-being. He's doing all of these things on behalf of the people. And then, verse 22, Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down after sacrificing the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the offering of well-being. Moses and Aaron entered the tent of meeting and then came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Get this. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. That did not happen at my ordination which I'm fine with. Isn't that amazing? The power of God is just completely revealed. Like, yes, these are my people. These are the ones. They are set apart to be holy. This is a big deal. Everybody in the community gets it. This is a big deal. God has showed up in a mighty way. Here we have our priests. They are different. They are set apart. They are holy for like a verse. (laughs) Chapter 10. Now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his censer, put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and they offered unholy fire before the Lord, such as he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, through those who are near me, I will show myself holy, and before all the people, I will be glorified, 
And Aaron was silent. Why is Aaron silent? Because the high priest is not allowed to grieve like other people grieve. The high priest is not allowed to wail, to mourn, to sob. The high priest is not allowed to mess up his hair or tear his robes. He has to keep a distance, even emotionally, from death. He cannot go near to it. In fact, there are Orthodox priests today, Orthodox rabbis from the priestly line, who still will not go to funerals unless it is someone in their immediate family. They have to keep a healthy distance from death, even emotionally. And, Aaron, and Moses says to Aaron, this, this is the deal. God's going to show his power and his holiness through you guys. Like the pressure is on. And what is with Nadab and Abihu? Like they just had a week intensive, right? They were in school for a week to learn. This is how you be a priest. This is how you kill an animal. This is where you put the blood. This is what you have to do. This is how you take care of your tunic. This is how you put on your sash and your headdress. Like, they had a whole week of learning. This is how you be a priest. This is how you are different. This is how you are set apart. This is how you are holy. And as soon as they get power on their own, they're like, they go rogue. And they do this thing when they bring in fire and it's not supposed to, they just, they're just like completely disregarded everything that God had said. They were supposed to be holy. They were supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to be different. And they weren't. It'd be really nice if we could say that that happened long ago. And things like that don't happen now. But we really can't say that, can we? The summer after my first year at Calvin, I came home from one of my two summer jobs, and I walked in the kitchen, and my mom looked at me, and she said, sit down, I need to talk to you about something. Now, I knew that it wasn't me, because I hadn't done anything. And I knew it wasn't my siblings, because as far as I knew, they hadn't done anything. And my mom never really talked to us like this, and so I thought, what is going on? And I sat down at the kitchen table, and she looked at me, and she said, Pastor Pete has had an affair. I was stunned. I couldn't even form words. I couldn't even come up with something to say in response. Pastor Pete was our pastor. He was warm and funny, and he drove a motorcycle. And he went with us on spring break trip to Mississippi. I could follow his sermons. <laughs> when I thought about being a pastor someday, I thought about being like Pastor Pete. He had been set apart to be different, to be holy, and he wasn't. And I was crushed. It'd be nice if that was a rare thing, but just 
tell me if you, your family, your church has been affected by the fall of a religious leader, an elder, a pastor, a deacon, a youth pastor, a worship leader, would you just raise your hand? Wow. That's too many. That's too many. And you guys know the pain. You know what happens to a church when the leader falls. You know what happens to your own self and your ability to trust in religious leaders when that happens. You know the pain that's then carried by you, by members of the community. You know that there are people who leave the church. They are supposed to be set apart. They are supposed to be holy. They're supposed to be different. And they're not. They're not. These guys weren't either. And the next two sons of Aaron step in and they take over and it goes passes on from them to the grandsons to the great-grandsons and on down the line. And let me tell you that none of these priests got it right. In fact, if you read the prophetic literature, if some of you are in prophetic literature classes, the priests are often the ones that are named explicitly for leading the people astray for starting up little side altars to Baal and Ashtoreth, for saying, oh, we can do all the sacrifices right here, it doesn't matter, for forgetting that there was a difference between unclean and clean and unholy and holy. The priests got it wrong all the time. And that's because the priests then and pastors now when we reach out, when we try to bring the holy, what happens is we get contaminated, right? We learned about this a few weeks ago with Adam and Eve, like everything gets contaminated. Sin touches everything, including our clergy. The unholy touches whatever holy is there. And there's this contamination that happens. And so instead of the holy being safe and sacred and set apart, it just gets messed up and tainted and wrong. And that's why the holiness of Jesus is so unusual. You see, when Jesus touches something else, instead of that unclean or unholy thing making him unclean or unholy, he actually makes that thing clean or holy. Like the story of the woman with the flow of blood, right? She sneaks up into the crowd, she grabs the hem of his garment, and instead of her making him sick, he makes her well. This was a complete undoing of the whole system that had been established. The reason you needed a priest is because the unholy could affect the holy. And now Jesus is the holy affecting the unholy. There's a story told about a funeral possession that's coming out of a village as Jesus is going into it, and they've got the man, the dead man, on a stretcher. And Jesus sees the procession coming, and he says, hey, wait, hold up. And he steps forward, and he touches the dead man. And this isn't in Scripture, but you can imagine that all the people right there went, oh! <gasps> because you did not touch dead people. 
If you read on in the story about these guys who got consumed at the altar, they're carried out by their tunics because no one wants to touch their bodies because they're unclean. That's how they carry them out. Jesus reaches up, touches the dead body. (gasps) But instead of death coming to him, life goes to the man and he sits up. And then they really freak out. (laughs) And he gives him back to his mom. When Jesus touches the eyes of the blind, they see. When Jesus touches the legs of the lame, they walk. When he touches the ears of the deaf, they hear. When he touches the brains of people with mental illness, they're able to think clearly. They have peace. Jesus brings the holy into all the places of the unholy. Jesus' power is greater than any unholy power. And this is the one we need. No pastor, no priest, no preacher can bring the holy. What we are supposed to do is point you to the only one who can bring the holy. We point you to Jesus. We say, this is the one. I will disappoint you. Jesus will not disappoint you. Jesus is the one who makes the way. Jesus is the one who clears out the sin. Jesus is the one who has your name on his breastpiece. Jesus is the one who takes you, your concerns, your sins, your gratitude to the Father. He knows your name. It's on his heart. And the names of our pastors and our priests and our preachers are on his heart too. About a year after my childhood pastor was let go from his position, he was invited back on a weekday evening and we had kind of a a time of reconciliation and just being together and seeing each other again. And I walked up to him and I shook his hand and I said, I hope you are well and I forgive you. Because I'm not holy and he's not holy. And let me tell you something about your pastors. Anybody who stands up in any kind of context and attempts to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, when that person stands up into that position within a community, the enemy immediately marks that person with a big bullseye. Because the enemy knows that if he can attack the spiritual leader, the spiritual followers will fall away. We've all seen it. Your pastors are under attack all the time. So your job, your calling, your invitation, your privilege, our delight is to pray for the pastors, to pray for the preachers, to pray for those who are trying to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray for their protection. Pray for their joy. Pray for them to love Jesus more tomorrow than they do today. 
And if you know your preacher, if you know your pastor, if you know your priest, send them a note. I'm praying for you today. If you know when they write their sermons, maybe you put a reminder in your phone and it pops up on that day, pray for your preacher today. This is how we lean in toward each other. This is how we care for each other. This is how we remind each other that no one is holy except Jesus alone. And this is how we, as Martin Luther would say, hashtag October, hashtag Reformation, This is how we are the priesthood of all believers because all of us get to bring each other before Jesus, our high priest, and he takes all of us before the throne of God the Father. This is how we get to live as Jesus would want us to live, by inviting and encouraging each other into holiness. The author of Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about Jesus as the high priest. We read a little bit of that earlier in the service. And he says this, every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same services, sacrifices, that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and since then has been waiting until his enemies are put as a footstool under his feet. Now listen to this. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Sanctification is a process. The Holy Spirit's working on all of us every moment to be a little bit more like Jesus. But as far as eternity is concerned... Because Jesus has done this for us. You are sanctified. I am sanctified. We are holy. We have that gift of eternal holiness because of what Jesus, our high priest, has done for us. So the author says, Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the holy of holies, the temple, by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith and listen to this imagery. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When Jesus washes us clean, When Jesus makes us holy, he invites us to be priests for each other, to have each other's names on our shoulders, to carry each other in our hearts, and not all by ourselves. We learned about that last week. No. On behalf of them, we bring them to the one who can act, to the one who can forgive, to the one who does heal. This is Jesus, our great high priest. He is the one who is holy. He is the one who makes us holy. Blessed be his holy name. 